0: Amen. You may be seated. If you would bow with me in prayer, and then we're going to look at Acts 2 together. Lord, we thank you for this beautiful, beautiful day. Thank you for the glorious weather that proclaims your glory all around us. We thank you that we can gather together in this place as your people, that we can uh, freely open your word and, and hear you speak to us today. We ask that as we do that, that your spirit would be moving in this place. That you would illuminate our hearts and our minds, that you would take the eternal truth of your word and apply it to our lives, that you would show us uh, how good of a God you are in the ways that you love us, in the ways that you're moving, in the plans that you have for us. And so we just pray that you would be our teacher, that you would be the one that shows us, that takes the truth of your word and applies it to our lives. Uh, We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. About uh, 15 years ago, Joanna and I, uh, went to Italy. Uh, we got to take a trip, uh, to Italy. And while we were there, uh, we did a lot of sightseeing. We went all over, uh, part of where we got to go is we got to go to Rome. And, and in our trip, uh, to Rome, we were fortunate enough to get to go to To Vatican City and to see St. Peter's and to go in all this stuff. And what we realized on our trip is all this incredible history that's all around you, like how much you don't know and how much you're missing and you're walking past things that you just don't know all the history that's there. But we walked into St. Peter and we just happened literally as we walked in the door, a lady walked by and she said, free tour. Uh, you know, free tour English, follow me. And we went, okay, yeah, let's follow her. We, we didn't know where to start or where to go. And so we did. And we learned all these incredible things by having this great tour guide. And this lady took us all around. I remember her taking and pointing out to us uh, a great big statue of Pope uh, Pius Seventh. I didn't know anything about Pope didn't grow up in Catholic church or any around that didn't know anything about him, but she started telling about this, this statue that he had commissioned and that all the popes did that at the end of their term. And when they're finished, they would commission a statue and then they'd be unveiled at their uh, funeral. And so Pope Pius VII wanted the greatest sculptor in all the world at the time. And the guy's name was Bertolt Thorvalson, and Bertolt Thorvaldsen was not Catholic. He was a Protestant, and this was a big deal that this pope wanted a Protestant to do his statue. And so they had this big thing about it, it as a big deal, and they decided that they would allow Bertil Thorvalson to do his statue. Um, but he was not allowed to sign it because he was not Catholic and he was Protestant. He could do the statue, but he wasn't allowed to put his name on it. And so he agreed and they said, OK, uh, a little while later, the pope actually died. And then the guy worked on this for years and then it was finally unveiled at his funeral. And so here it is, all the people there, the giant mass celebrating the pope's life and all this stuff. And they pull the sheet off and everybody gasps. And it turns out the statue of Pope Pius II actually has Bertil Thorvaldsen's face on the pope. So he signed it <laughs> with his face <laughs> Right. He put it on there instead. So he didn't put his name on it, but he put his face on it. And so I say all that just you wouldn't. I would have never known that walking through St. Peter's unless somebody said, hey, let me tell you the story of Pope Pius, the seventh statue. I thought That was really cool. Like, I obviously still remember it 15, 16 years later that that's what he did. But but my point in all that is that makes say, OK, what does that have to do with anything? Well, when we get to this passage in Acts chapter two, just like we would have missed so many things walking through St. Peter's without a tour guide. There's a lot of things I think we can miss in Acts chapter two if we don't slow down and kind of go back and look at all the things that God was doing. And so I simply say that is, is I want to seek to kind of help be the tour guide today of just pointing out some things that God's been doing all the way through Scripture that he's bringing to fulfillment right here in Acts chapter two just want to show you some of those things and kind of point those out. And so we see the immensity of God's plan and what he was after and what he was doing. And so simply, this is the way we're going to look at those first few verses of Acts chapter two. One, I want us to kind of just do a flashback. Consider some of the background It's really important for us to understand this passage, to get the fullness of everything that God's doing here. Then secondly, we're going to look at how this is all transitioning, how all these strands, God's bringing all these things together for something new and really wonderful. And then the last thing I want us to consider is that we now live in this period. We now live in this age as all of it has come together. And I hope that that's a great encouragement and hope to you as we look at all that. So with that said, let's go back. There's going to be kind of some flashbacks here, but look at the very first verse of Acts chapter two in verse one. And so listen to what it says. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And we're going to stop right there because there's so much happening even in that one verse. It tells us that the day of Pentecost has, has has arrived. And so they've gathered together. And here they are. Now, the they I think that we get we saw in chapter one is the early church. Jesus has just died, been resurrected. The ascension we looked at last week, he gives them the command to go to the ends of the earth, to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth and proclaim the gospel, be my witnesses of what I've done. And he's just said that to him. And then you get here in chapter two. It's the same little group that were there together. The end of chapter one, what happens is they're together. They're praying. They're in a room together. And it tells us there's about 120 people, about 120 total. That's who's there. And he tells them to wait until the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And then they're going to go be witnesses. So that's who we're talking about here. The 120 that are gathered together. That's that's kind of where we are. But they're gathered together, it tells us, when the day of Pentecost arrived. Now, I don't know what your church background is or what kind of images you get when we say the day of Pentecost or the way you make those connections. If you grew up in a Christian church your whole life, Pentecost marks the coming of the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about the day of Pentecost and the church calendar in that way. But there's a whole lot of things that happened before that these people, these Jewish people in the first century knew Pentecost to be and were celebrating. And if we miss all those, I think we miss a lot of what God's doing here. So we kind of need a flashback of what Pentecost even means. So Penta just means 50. So 50 days, 50 days after Passover, God instituted a, a festival that Israel was to celebrate every year. And he gave this to Moses. We'll talk about that again in a minute. But he gave to Moses this festival, the, 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 the Feast of first fruits. And it was to take place 50 days after they celebrated Passover. And what they did is they were to bring their crops, the first fruits of their crops. Now, you got to remember, this is an agrarian society, a farming community. And so when harvest comes, they bring the very first fruits of their harvest and they offer it to God. And this is what they were celebrating in the Feast of First Fruits. And what it was was just simply to say this. Anything good that you have, you've produced, you've gotten in your life, you bring the first fruits the first 10% of it, and you offer it back to God to say, look at what God has blessed us with. All good gifts come from God. It's a way to keep him at the center of everything they were doing. And so God institutes the Feast of first fruits, And so Israel would do this for 15, 16, 1700 years. They would continue to do this over and over every year. And so when they talk about this idea of the people coming to Jerusalem and they're there to celebrate Pentecost, they're coming for the Feast of First Fruits. This is a big part of their calendar. And so people would come from all over to Jerusalem to celebrate this. And so here they are on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Passover, that this is taking place. But in the history of Israel, they begin to celebrate Pentecost with another meeting. Not just the Feast of first fruits, but they attached to it another meaning as they started to read the scriptures and they started to remember what God had done and started to look at it. They started to celebrate it as the day that God had given the law to Moses. Exodus 19 and 20. If you know your Bible, you go back. The people are saved from Egypt. They are led out by Moses, which God called Moses. And this will be important too in a minute. Lots of flashbacks. Bear with me. It's kind of like watching your favorite show. And there's all these things I show you at the beginning previously on. And there's like three or four things. And you're like, OK, that's where they're going in this show now. Right. Like they haven't had that character in like months. And now they're showing me a flashback. I know they're going to be in it. It's the same thing here. There's so many things that God's doing. And so go back for just a second. Exodus three. How does God call Moses? If you know that story before he delivers them, leaves the people out of Egypt. How does God call Moses right by Mount Sinai There's a burning bush that knows the seas that's burning, but it's not burning. Right. Like it's on fire, but it's not burning up. And he goes over to check it out. And God speaks to him and he reveals his name, his covenant name to him. He tells him to go to Egypt and tell him to let my people go. And so he calls Moses into this. And then Moses goes and does just that. He goes to Pharaoh on behalf of Israel that is slaves in Egypt. And he says, let my people go. And God allows them to leave and takes them out. And he brings them out into the desert. If you'll remember, the way that they're taken out is 10 plagues that God allows to fall on Egypt. Yes, the last being the Passover, which they will then celebrate ongoing year to year. Fifty days after that, they're out in the wilderness at Mount Sinai, and God comes down on the mountain in fire and smoke and speaks to the people of Israel. So they realize we 50 days after we celebrate first fruits, but it was 50 days after the first Passover that God spoke to Moses. So Pentecost began to have two meanings. It had to do with God speaking to Moses and then celebrating him, giving the law to Moses but it also had to do with the feast of first fruits offering your first of all that God's given you and so they would celebrate this every year and so the audience as Luke is writing in the 1st century here's pentecost they know all that we maybe need a tour guide sometimes as as we read our bible that we just can gloss over that oh well the day of pentecost arrived they're all together pentecost is going to be about the holy spirit it is But there's a lot of things God was doing for a long time before that that are going to be really important when we get further into this. And so I just want you to see that and understand that image that's happening. Remember, too, when God gave the law to Moses and the people at Mount Sinai, they went from a group, literally kind of a ragtag group of slaves that had just come out of Egypt that don't really have any identity other than their descendants of Abraham, descendants of Jacob, who would. Um, and so that's their identity. That's what they've got. There are people together, but they're not really a nation and God pulls them out and he begins to give them a law and to give them these things and he molds them into a people. And so this is part of what they're celebrating. And so these two celebrations mark Pentecost. Okay. So hold that fast forward. Now we're in Acts. Acts is 30 AD in chapter two. Jesus has just died, resurrected Gives the command, go to the ends of the earth. He ascends to heaven. And then he says, wait for the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon you. And so they're waiting and they're waiting. And now it's been 10 days since Jesus ascended. The 40th day he ascended 10 days later. Oh, now we're on Pentecost. And so people have flooded into Jerusalem. They're celebrating all these celebrations. And this is what happens. And so I want you to get all that background is important as we go into this text. Right. So so let's pick up with what happens when the day of Pentecost arrived. They were all together in one place and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other tongues as the spirit gave them utterance. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each one of us in our native language? And so there they are together to celebrate Pentecost and the Holy Spirit comes in power. And it fills the room. And these divided tongues of fire come and rest over each one. And then they begin to speak about who God is and what he's done in all different languages of all the people around. And you see this incredible scene as God is doing this work. And so here's what I want us to consider. Why does God do it like this? Why do He have him wait? And why did he come like this and why? The, the tongues of fire and why the languages and why all these things? I, I believe that God's inspired this and he planned it and this was not haphazard. It didn't just happen that way. He had a plan. So the question is, why did he do it like that? And so that's what I want us to consider. And as we do, as we consider that, there's a couple things that I want you to think about. One is in Hebrews, it tells us that everything that God was doing in the Old Testament are shadows and copies of a deeper reality. So that means the law, means the temple, means the high priest. That means the festivals, the things that God reminds them that I want you to do over and over and remember and be reminded of. He does all of these things as shadows and copies to something greater. And so think about what a shadow is like. A shadow is a a flat, two-dimensional image of something that's far greater than that. And you get a sense of what it is, but you don't get the fullness until you see the real thing. And that's exactly what God was doing with all these things in the Old Testament. And so I just want to remind you that God's inspired word in Hebrews says all these things had meaning. And there was a reason that God was doing it the way he was doing it. And so with that said, I want you to think about big scope of all of it. So to flash back to Moses... Giving of the words or, or the law, giving of these festivals. But I want you to think even bigger picture than that. Genesis three, God makes Adam and Eve, or He creates them in end of Genesis one, Genesis two, Genesis three. They sin, right? And what happens in their very first moment is they break their relationship with God. They decide to ignore him. That's what sin is. We've decided to rebel against what God has said and what he's told us. That's exactly what Adam and Eve do. And God immediately says in Genesis 315, he turns to Eve and he says, through your seed, Eve, I'm going to defeat sin and evil. I'm going to crush the serpent's head, Satan, which represents all those things with the one that will come through your seed, Eve. The very first gospel call that the proto gospel, the first God makes this promise. And then we fast forward and into Genesis several uh, hundreds of years later. Abraham comes in Genesis 12 and God speaks to this man, Abraham, and he says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to give you a great number of descendants and your descendants are going to grow into a nation and they're going to inhabit a land. And I'm going to bless the world through your seed, Abraham. That's the Abraham covenant. People, land, nation, blessing." And he says, I'm going to do it through your descendants, talking about Israel and what they would do in the world, but ultimately talking about Jesus, who was the one to come that would defeat sin and death and evil. Right. That's a big picture of the whole Bible. The rest of it is the unfolding of what God promised he would do. And so you get that. And then when we get to this idea of God now taking Abraham's descendants, and making them into a people, he speaks to Moses and he says, You're now going to give them this law and you're going to teach them how to sacrifice. You're going to teach them how to worship. You're going to teach them what I'm like. You're going to give them these commandments. You're going to do all these things to form them into a people so that they can be a light to the world. I don't know if you've ever considered that, but in the Old Testament, God took this people and he made them into a people and he gave them his law and he showed them what worship looks like and then he put them in the center of the known world. They were right on the major highway of the entire ancient world. And he set them right in the middle so that everyone could see what God's like. And that's what Israel was to be about. They were to show what true worship of God was like. And so in that, he gives them that law in Exodus 19 and 20 at Mount Sinai. And you remember what that scene was like? If you've read that in a while, flashback again, Exodus 19 and 20. You know what happens there? Smoke comes down, fire on the mountain. God speaks to Moses. He speaks audibly that the people can hear the Ten Commandments, but he gives Moses very specific instructions. He says, you keep all the people away. If they touch the mountain, they will die. And so God was showing what a holy God and a sinful people look like. I'm going to teach you what it looks like to approach me. I'm going to teach you what it looks like to honor me. I'm going to teach you how far removed you are from that as you hear the Ten Commandments spoken. And they were scared to death. If you read in Exodus right after that, you know what they say to Moses after that little scene? as God speaks and they hear it. They go, hey, from now on, Moses, you talk to God and tell us what he said. But we can't handle that again. Right. You can go look it up. That's a paraphrase, but that's really what they say. You talk to him from now on and we'll be over here and we're cool with that scenario. And that's what they say. Right. It's, it was scary. God's glory comes down and they're made aware of how sinful they are and how holy God is. So you have that scene and you have all this happening in the way God is working and you see what's happening. Now, I want to make all those connections and pull all those threads together to what's happening here in, in Acts chapter two. Right? So here they are in the room and all of a sudden the sound It doesn't say there's actual wind. It just says the sound of wind and it's overwhelming and it's loud and it comes. And then look at what it says. Verse two, suddenly there came from heaven a sound like mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Right. So you get the scene. God now shows himself in fire again, just like he did to Moses in the burning bush just like he did to the people of Israel with Moses representing them at Mount Sinai. But now the fire comes. But do you see the difference? See, before the fire came and God said, you stay back, you stay away from the mountain and I will speak and I will tell you how you approach me and you stay back. But this time the fire comes and it divides and it rests on each one of them. It's no longer over there. It's no longer stay away from this because of, oh no, this is really scary, but it comes and it rests on each one of them. And I want you to understand and see what God's doing here. This is after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, and he's finished his work, and he ascends to the heavens, and he says, You wait. And I'm going to show you again what this looks like. And he's been telling them, It's going to be better for you, and I promise I'm going to send the helper, and this is coming. And so the fire comes and it rests on each one of them. And I want you to see the difference. The difference is simply this before Moses got the law, but now Jesus has kept it perfectly. Right? Before Moses went up and he got a plan for the way they were to sacrifice to approach a holy God. But now Jesus has become the ultimate sacrifice before they got a plan of a temple where God's glory would dwell but they couldn't go into the holy of holies or that part but now the veil has been ripped in two, and it is no longer in that place it is no longer that and now the fire rests on each one of them do you see what god's teaching in all of this he is showing them emphatically that they can now have a relationship with god that is intimate and close and full as the spirit comes on them completely it is no longer God is over there and you can't get any nearer than than the outer courtyard or you can't get near the mountain and you have to stand back Now the fire. The tongues of fire come and rest on them. And God is teaching them what it looks like now that Jesus has brought all of this to fulfillment, that now, if, if I could be so bold to say this, you are the holy of holies where God's glory dwells and it's no longer a temple. John chapter 4. Jesus meets a woman at the well in Samaria, kind of in the shadow of Mount Sinai. And they're talking theology. And what does this look like? And how do we worship? And should we worship there or should we worship in Jerusalem? And do you know what Jesus says? He says, The time is coming and it is now here where you don't worship on that mountain or you don't worship in Jerusalem but my people worship in spirit and in truth because you hear what Jesus is saying. The time is now here because I am here because I'm going to do everything that God was planning on and I'm going to do it perfectly and I'm going to grant you access to the father. through what I have done. And so what you get here in this image that they're seeing, Jesus sends the spirit. He tells them, my father's going to send it because of what I've done. And all of this is making connections to all of what God was doing all the way through history. All these things. Right. Like, I mean, you think about God's foresight and what he was after is he used that fire to talk to Moses and then he used it again on the mountain. And he says, I think to will send tongues of fire to show them so emphatically what I'm doing. And he does. And the spirit fills them and it comes upon them. And look what happens when they're filled. The first thing they do, verse four, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other tongues as the spirit gave them utterance. So what's that about? And get all been out of shape over the spoken tongues. If you put it in the context of what's happening here, what happened is they began to speak audibly in languages of the people that were there and they could understand. And you look down at verse 11 And it says Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. That's basically a way to say everybody. No matter what their background was. We heard them telling in their own languages or tongues the mighty works of God. And so what happens is as soon as they're filled with the spirit, what happens is they begin to proclaim the greatness of Jesus and what he's done. And they proclaim it so every tribe, tongue, and nation can hear. Do you see what God was doing when He said, You wait until you're clothed with power from on high, and then you're going to be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth? He says, I'm going to supernaturally speak through you in the languages that they can understand, and everyone's going to see it. And these people are amazed and perplexed. Well, what's going on? And so now I want you to think about the feast of first fruits. The first of the harvest that you bring and you offer to God, why did he choose to do it on that day? Do you see? Do you see what God's doing? This is the first fruits of the church that are coming to faith in Jesus. They're going, What is going on? And Peter's going to stand up and tell them. He's going to lay the gospel out, and they're going to go from 120 people to 3,000 people in the matter of minutes. The first fruits of the harvest of those that God is calling to himself in fullness in Christ. You see what he's doing? It wasn't a haphazard that he said, I want you to celebrate this every year for the next thousand plus years. The feast of first fruits and then they start to come. But not only that, you could even go deeper with what it tells us later on in the New Testament. Paul will tell us in Romans Eight. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. He's talking about the the weight of sin on the earth. But now because of what Jesus has done, he says, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoptions of sons and the redemptions of our body. Do you hear what he's saying? Is that when you become a believer and the Holy Spirit comes into your life and begins to remake you, you have the first fruits of the redemption that God is going to bring completely and totally when Christ returns. You have the beginning of it. He's already started to do it in and through you right now in this moment. And so not only is it the first fruit of the harvest of those that are coming to faith, it's the first fruit of of what God is going to do in his creation. He's begun to do in us now. Do you see all the connections that God's making? All these things that he's doing. He even goes so far here to bring together all of what he had promised to Abraham and to Moses and what he had sought for Israel. Abrahamic covenant people, land, nation blessing. I'm going to bless the world through your seed. Abraham was always what God was doing was always about blessing the world. It was never just about one nation or one group of people. Israel was there to be a light to the nations. And so what does he do in the fullness of this? The spirit comes. Comes in power. And then all of a sudden they speak in every tongue and every language and they proclaim it across the whole face of the earth. Are those that are represented in Jerusalem? We're going to see an Acts It's then going to go out in all those places. But they speak into all those languages. And so what God's showing you clearly is that this great news of his salvation, his redemption is for all creation and for all people. It's not just one group here or one group here. It's for all of them. That was the great uh, critique that John the Baptist had when he came. Israel had become all about Israel. He says, repent. You're saved by faith, not by being an Israelite. You're not saved because you're Jewish. You're saved because of who God is and what he's done. And you put your faith in him. And he begins to call them to repentance and the fullness of this now comes. And God emphatically undoes the curse of the Tower of Babel. Do you see all the threads he's pulling together? he confused their language because they were all about themselves instead of proclaiming who God was. And now when the spirit comes in full and they begin to proclaim who God is, he makes it to where they can all understand. Do you see that? And so all these things God is pulling together in all these ways. He's taking all these strands and he's showing you this has been my plan all along. And so we can read one verse where it says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all in one place. And miss that that has implications that span thousands of years of what God was doing. And so he brings all these things together. And so I want to just end with this and I want you to think about, well, what does that mean for us? You go, well, that's pretty cool. Right? God was working in all these ways, and the Bible comes together all like that. All right. And it can be this head knowledge that you're like, that's pretty cool. It's a good apologetic. Look at the way God did all these things. But what does it mean for us today? I want you to think about the tongues of fire resting on each one of them. I think God emphatically saying that in Christ I now dwell in fullness in the Holy Spirit with you. You understand what that means? We don't have to come to this place and meet God here. God's not dwelling in this building where we come to meet Him. He is with you at all times and always. So Jesus says, I never will leave you or forsake you. I'm with you forever till the end of the age. Go and proclaim and do this. I am the power that is with you in all this. It means in Christ you have an intimacy with God. Now, there's a couple errors that quickly come from that. One is sometimes we go, well, I got I'm the temple. I'm the church. We say that here. You don't go to church. You are the church. And so we go, oh, well, I'm good. I might check in at the building every once in a while, but I'm good because I've got the Holy Spirit and I'm fine. But God commands us to meet together. He gives us each different gifts in the spirit that we're called to encourage one another with. And so that's an error we make where we go, well, I'm good with God and I've got the spirit and I don't need anybody else. Actually, that's contradictory to so many things that God clearly tells you in Scripture. And so we can quickly go off to one side or the other. Or we can say we've got to come to this building to meet God or this is time with God. Right? Or, or my quiet time is time with God and my job is just the secular thing I do. No, no, no. If the spirit is now in you in fullness at all times, it's all time with God. There's no time he's not with you. There's no time that the Spirit is not indwelling and with you. And so it blows apart that idea. And it's kind of like a lady saying to Jesus, should we worship over there, or over there? It's like, ah, you're going to worship all the time. In spirit and in truth, because I am going to come down with you always. And so there's an intimacy that we now have because of what Christ has done. But the second thing I'd say to you is is, is what Paul says in Romans 8 about you now have the first fruits of the spirit in your life. And he begins to remake you from one degree of glory to another. And we're in process in that. But here's the the hard part of that is we're in process. And it stinks. Sometimes (laughs) the spirit shows you and you go, man, I am fleshly and messed up and I'm still making the same mistakes and I'm still blowing it and I'm still doing this. But it's the first fruits. And he says, what I started in you, I'm going to end. What I began, I'm going to bring to fullness. This is just the taste of the beginning. And so when God begins to remake you and we see him move and we see him doing things, that's just a little piece of the fullness of what he's going to do. That's really good news. This is just the beginning. That he's going to bring it to a fullness in a way that we cannot imagine. And so I tell you, practically speaking, that means that the spirit of God that is going to regenerate all things is now at work in and through you. So go to work. Begin to seek to speak to the things that are not glorifying who God is and expect to see him move. It, It doesn't mean that we go, well, I have the first fruits and he's going to bring it to fruition. So I'm just going to pack up and hang on tight until he comes back. No, he's just sent you out in the power of the Spirit to proclaim the good news of who he is. You know, I don't know if you caught it, but this passage here radically blows up the idea of racism. Right? Every tribe, tongue, Arabians, all that list you can read there, Cretans, people from all over the world, whoever they are, the gospel's for them. Blows that apart. And so instead of, oh, we'll, we'll just wait and hold up, it's like, oh, we get to be part of this. And He's commanded us to be part of this. And so go proclaim the gospel. But then the last part I'd say to you, as you do and as you think about that and as you consider all of this, remember, God originally came in the fire and it was scary. And they couldn't come near. But now in Christ, you can come near and he is with you always completely and totally because of what Christ has done. You're accepted and you can rest in that. You go, man, well, I got a lot of work to do and I just I'm a mess. And I'm a... But you can rest in who you are in Christ and what he's done. And so that tongue of fire coming and resting on you is God saying in Jesus you have been made clean. You have been made righteous. And now I dwell with you completely and totally. And I love you completely and totally because of what Christ has done. And you can rest in that. The glorious good news of the gospel. And so there's so many things here that God's doing. I I'm, I'm, I'm not a great tour guide. I just missed a whole lot of it. There's a lot more to this. But hopefully we get a taste of how great our God is and how much he loves us and how many ways he's working in all this. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the glorious picture of your great love for your creation. The care in which you reveal yourself and you teach and you point to these things and you show these things. And then you lovingly just pull all those strands together to show us of your great plans We thank you that they find their ends in Jesus, that we have been made new, that our sin has been dealt with, and it's all because of Christ. I I pray that you would impress upon us anew today, that that being filled with your spirit looks like glorifying your name to the ends of the earth. And we just ask that you would fill us with your spirit for your great name's sake, that we would glorify you in our lives today as we leave this place with our friends and our neighbors and our work that we would look for opportunities to make much of you and it wouldn't be in our power but in yours the spirit working in of us in us for your name we pray all these things in jesus precious name amen